Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Soprano. This is episode number 65 of the Tartan Talks podcast, and our guest is one of the most interesting people maybe in all of golf, Dana Fry. Dana is a partner in Fry Straka Global Golf Design. We've had his partner, Jason Straka, on the podcast multiple times, so it was great to get Dana on to talk about his career moving earth. Yes, Dana has moved a lot of it in his career and getting a chance to work on some new courses. Before we get going with Dana, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. So we're glad they were on board again here in 2021, and we're glad that Dana was able to join us as our final guest of the year. Well, Dana, thanks for taking the time to join us. We've had Jason on a few times, but it's awesome to, to speak with you. And the first thing I want to get out of the way here is how many times have you been in southern New Jersey since 2018? Guy, I'm not even sure. I'd have to go to my day planners that I've kept every year for 30 years. And uh, I would say I've, I've been averaging 30 times a year, 35 times a year since we started. Yeah, and most of those trips are, I would say, averaging two and a half to three days at a time. So it's been a lot of time. Yeah, and many of our listeners have seen the pictures or heard the stories of Union League National. Uh, the Philadelphia Union League was on our November cover. Describe what you and Jason are doing on that site in your own words. Well, you know, we were hired um, in, the, in the fall, winter of uh, 2017, early 2018. Uh, they took ownership of the club in October of 2017, and we started construction in February of 2018. But it was an interesting job and unlike anything we've ever done in that we didn't have any topography, we didn't have any mapping, we didn't, uh, so we had very little plan, we had virtually no planning time and we just started out doing a small renovation because they wanted to show to the membership that they were making changes and they were going to improve the course because it was in, you know, it was, it was, it needed a lot of help when they bought the golf course. It is really, you know, well, for 23 or four years that it had been around, they had basically no money's been made on improvements and, and uh, it, of course, it got grown in too tight and the turf grass was struggling and a lot of problems. So they wanted to work on the, the four holes immediately starting out of the blocks right up by the clubhouse, uh, number one holes and the two number nines. They returned by the clubhouse. So we started doing that in February of 2018, and then as time went along, I, got, I talked to um, a couple of Jeff McFadden, who was the GM of the entire Union League, and told them, you know, we could build a course somewhat like a Calusa Pines, and had they ever seen it or heard of it, and they had heard of it, but they had not seen it. So Jeff, we arranged a trip in that spring of 18 for the Jeff and uh, several of the board members to go down to play Calusa Pines. Actually, they played with the old owner of uh, what the Sand Barons, which is now the course that the Union League bought, Malcolm Robertson. And Malcolm hosted, I think there was about three groups of uh, people from the Union League. And I remember it playing his day because I was in Vietnam at the time. And I got a phone call from Malcolm about three or four in the morning. And he said, you're all set. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, uh, Dan DeLello, who's a, a powerful member at the Union League and been a past president, um, when they were on the ninth hole, apparently, up on the tee box, up on a hill, which is up on about a 35-foot hill, looking across the course, 
he just told Jeff, he says, you know, we need his exact words were, we need to turn junior free. And I don't know why he calls me junior being that I'm 59 now, but he, that's what he called me. And, uh, and Jeff said, well, how are we going to pay for this? And, and Dan said, we'll figure it out. And that was the crux of how it all started. And, uh, once that happened, just on some mapping that we could find, because they still didn't have a accurate topo map, we just started sketching out where we could uh, do a, a big fill like we did at Calusa, a centralized fill. And then, obviously, to generate uh, that dirt, we had to show where the lakes would go. And uh, over a period of about a month, uh, it evolved into sort of what you see today on paper was this big meandering fill that uh, in some reaches close to 50 acres in size. It's a continuous fill that it covers over 50 acres. And in, the land existed where that big fill is from like elevation 18 to up to elevation, say, 22 or 23 uh, above sea level. And now that high point on that ridge uh, reaches as high as 78 feet, and there's multiple spots that are 50 to 60, 65 feet tall. So it's just this big meandering fill that has, uh, I think, nine uh, peak, uh, nine green complexes, 10 T complexes, and parts of six or seven fairways in one continuous fill. It just turned into a, a literally behemoth of a job. I was fortunate enough I had a chance to go on top of that hill with Director of Agronomy Scott Bordner this past summer, and it, it, it's mesmerizing. What do you think when you go up there and see what the course in the land has become now, Dana? Some people tend to think I, um, you know, my character is that, you know, I like to move a lot of dirt, and we don't always do. Very rarely have I had the opportunity to move dirt like this. But I was taught when I worked with Tom Fazio by a guy named Andy Banfield, uh, who's worked with Tom since, I believe, 1973 and is still working for Tom today. I was taught how to visualize and how to move big dirt. And his big motto was, if you're going to move dirt, move enough to then cut everything into it, not just do individual little fills, which is what a lot of people tend to do. They build fill for the tee. They build a few, uh, fill for the mountings, uh, the ridges down the sides of the holes where they'll cut the bunkers in. They might build some mounds behind the green and they cut bunkers in and, Andy's motto was, if you're going to fill it, you fill the whole thing, and then, you, and then you grade the golf hole into that one fill. And his reasoning for that was that you could, if, if you could move dirt properly and you could re-veg it properly, you could make it look natural. Now, there are some people that don't like that style of architecture. You know, they're, they're only well, like the, the minimalism type of sites, and, uh, and I would agree with them. On those types of sites, when you have the sand hills and abandoned dunes and sand valleys and friars heads, all these magnificent pieces of land, you should ideally move as little dirt as possible and just lay the golf holes into the ground. But when you have dead flat sites with high water tables, if you really want to create real visual drama, then the way I was taught by Andy was you do big fills like what they did at Shadow Creek. And uh, that was just the product of the way I was taught and raised. And uh, so when, I, when given that opportunity, I do like to do that. And you have a second one now, right, on the, the backside of the golf course? Well, that fill, are you talking about more big fill? Yep. It's, it's the same fill. Oh, that wow. Fill, yeah. That's what people don't think. And that, yeah. that's 
the way, again, with one of the big things that Andy taught me, that fill from that high point, that part of that ridge goes out into the, the uh, number five grant mm-hmm. fairway, which is in 10 feet of fill. It then goes back to the tee box, which is up on about 25 feet of fill, ties into the halfway house, and then goes out into the other half of the property. And, you know, when I first did the, the uh, sort of the concept for this, I did not have the fill from, say, where the halfway house is in 5T, that other part of the project you're referring to. Mm-hmm. But then I I convinced, uh, you know, Jeff and and, uh, and some of the board members that, and to me, if you're doing a fill like that, it's like not having, it, to make it look really believable, it has to go on. And it's like arteries is what I told him, like you have a heart. And the heart now, to me, on that whole golf course is the halfway house. It's not the highest fill. It's on about 25 feet of fill, but it is the heart of the place, and you have arteries running out in all directions. And that's what that, to me, is what makes it look so believable, especially when the landscaping matures, which is, uh, you know, another story in amongst itself because it's one of the biggest revegetation jobs probably ever done in our country. Yeah, when you're on the, the ground there, it, it looks like, a lot of the surrounding land in New Jersey with the different plants and trees. Explain that revegetative process and what the goal is there. Well, that was something that Jason, uh, who was the primary driver of, because, you know, what I was taught with, by Fazio is that the key to landscaping is just revegetating the site with what is native to the area. Mm-hmm. And it's it's in, we're in the Pine Barrens region, the same region as Pine Valley, which is less than an hour away. And we have the same, basically, three types of trees that are 98 per 99% of our trees, which are pines, oaks, and cedars. Uh, so I knew, and to me, it was really important. I'm not actually a big tree guy now, but on this particular site, the only way it'll ever look natural long-term is if we get, when we get all those trees growing up and down all those ridges, tying back into the native uh, trees at natural ground level, in time, it'll they'll just look like they were just big hills, and it was just a great piece of land, just no different than what we did at Calusa Pines with pines, oaks, and palm trees. It's just a different plant palette. And then Jason also identified in working with some plant specialists, basically, if I recall correctly, it was 13 different types of ornamental uh, ground covers and uh, grasses that were predominant in the Pine Barrens region. So we're basically revegging this golf course with the exact same vegetation that has exists at Pine Valley today. It is no different. And given time, the vegetation, uh, those hills and stuff will look, you know, just like they were there forever. It's just going to take 10, 12, 15 years before it's fully, fully mature, but it's, it's going to be um, quite a place when it's all done and, and fully developed and matured out. Dana, how awesome is it to get this type of opportunity in these times to work on a project like this? Well, obviously, there's not, as you know, there's very few new Mm. golf courses being built today, although there is an uptick right now as we speak. And actually, Mm. where I live in South Florida has become a real hot spot on both the East and West Coast. Uh, But... uh, for the most part, new golf is going to be developed out of the country for the rest of my career, and I hope to be doing this for at least another 20 years. And uh, so it was. We realized we were fortunate to get a job that of this magnitude and scope and, and scale. Um, 
we knew it was a, a very rare opportunity. And then obviously COVID hit early on in the project, you know, when we were about a year and a half into it. And uh, everybody was wondering if we'd slow down, stop, shut down, whatever. And the board of the Union League and Jeff just kept pushing right through it. And uh, and so it, 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 in many ways, it helped us, helped me in particular, because I'm a, uh, I love action and I like, and, and I spend most all my time either looking for work or on sites. I spend a lot of time traveling uh, all over the world, and obviously I couldn't do that during the pandemic. But I was up at the Union League. I, virtually, I never missed a week. I, I was on an airplane every week since the pandemic started. So let's go to the early stages of your career. You talked a little about Andy Banfield. You, you worked with him. You also worked with Tom Fazio and Mike Strantz. What did you What did you learn from those people, and how does that influence your work today? I was real fortunate when I, I played golf at the University of Arizona. And during the summer, I shot a um, course record at a place called Randolph Park. And they did an article about it in the paper. And I was at a bar with some uh, guys from the golf team. And, one, and there was a gentleman there named Andy Banfield. And he saw the article in the paper. And we started talking. And he recognized my picture. He told me he worked for Tom Fazio. And they were just starting a job called Fintana Canyon in Tucson. And he invited me out, and, you know, I don't know, a few days later, I went out there, and he offered me a part-time job, and I said, I'll take a semester off. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and, you know, that was 1983, and I've been doing it ever since. I mean, it's just a sheer stroke of luck that I met Andy, and he became a very uh, huge influence in my life. And then when we were finishing that job, um, Tom Fazio offered me a full-time job, and that's where we did. So those two guys... It's just a sheer stroke of luck. I met Andy. He gave me an opportunity. Um, he instilled in me, you know, the, the importance of seeing great golf. And he started to take me to great golf courses right when we were, were building Ventana Canyon. You know, I remember he took me on some of my first great trips and got me to see Casa de Campo and Marion and Pine Valley, you know, really early in my career. And because um, he thought it was really important to see the great old golf courses, but also to see the great the, the new ones at that time that were being built by Nicholas or Jones or um, Pete Dye, whoever it was, the big guys at that time. So I was just really fortunate in a whole bunch of ways. And, you know, and Andy's biggest strength is, you know, he was developing it at that time, but he's never been given credit. He doesn't seek any credit, but, you know, he is the guy, in my personal opinion, that made Tom into what he is today because he really perfected the art of mass movement of dirt, the revegetation of it, and making it look natural. And that sort of had become Fazio's mantra, especially after he did Shadow Creek uh, in the late 80s. And um, so, you know, I had a really good teacher from my first job. And then I, um, Fazio, when he offered me a full-time job, they sent me to uh, Kalawasee Island, which was just off of Hilton Head. And I live right next door to Mike Strands. And that's when I met Mike in 1984. He was sort of the boss of the job. Andy would show up, uh, you know, once every few weeks or whatever, but Mike was there every day. And he was running a bulldozer, and he, and he taught me to run the bulldozer and to, to shape. But where he really was uh, an amazing guy, he was probably the best graphic artist of any architect that's ever lived. And his drawings, and it would be pencil sketches in the field. He would literally he'd park his bulldozer. You'd sit there, and in 30 minutes, he'd give you this on an 8 by 11 piece of paper. He'd just give you this pencil sketch, and it was it was like it was true artwork. 
And he said, let's build something like that. And that's how I learned how to build my first golf courses. I mean, truly build when I talk physically build them on a, on a bulldozer, because we didn't have any plans. They were doing it all by eyesight in the field and Mike's drawings. So, you know, Andy taught me how to move dirt and Mike taught me how to get to see it and get it shaped. Unbelievably lucky that I had the opportunity to work with both of those guys and uh, I wouldn't be in the business without them, period. So I owe them everything. Did you finish school? I did not finish my last year of college, which is a sore subject to my, to my parents because my book, parents both had master's degrees. My sister graduated law school and my other sister had two masters in, in nursing. And uh, so it was a, a very sore subject in my family that I didn't graduate college, but uh, it worked out in the end for me. Have you thought about what would have happened to your career? Had you, you said no to that opportunity? No, you know, cause I wanted to play golf, but I realized yeah. I, you know, I was a good player obviously, but I, but I knew I wasn't good enough to play it. At least in my mind, I wasn't good enough to play the two. And I, and I knew it would be a stretch. So if I wouldn't have taken the job, I would have played golf one more year. And the odds are I probably would have ended up in the golf business in some other way, whether it's being at a golf pro or, you know, working for a manufacturer, I have no idea, but cause, cause I love golf that much. I mean, it was obvious I was going to be in golf that, that I knew for certain cause I just love golf and always have and always will. And have you kept that love going? I know that the golf business can harden a lot of people and even turn some people off to golf, but do, do you still have that same love for it that you had 40 years ago? The golf business, uh, especially in, in our particular field, is all encompassing because, you know, I've traveled over 120 countries now. I've lived abroad, overseas, in Asia, worked on projects all over the world. So there's a tremendous amount of time it takes away. So I, I would say as the years have gone on, I've gotten to the point where I play very little golf. And actually, in the last year, I haven't played at all because my stepson's become a, a very top-level competitive player. And, and uh, my spare time is, you know, I design golf courses, and the rest of my time is taking a Noah around to playing tournaments all over the country. He's got some of the best teachers. And so I'm still totally immersed in golf. I'm just not playing myself. We talked off air about this. Your stepson, Noah, is a very high-level golfer. Uh, he can hit the ball really far. Have you watched him play your courses? And what goes through your mind when he plays a course that you designed? Well, I'll, I'm going to give you some for instances. When we when, to show you how much business has changed, which some people are familiar with this, but uh, when I started working for Tom Fazio, we, we built dog legs at 267 yards. Today, we built dog legs at 320 yards. When I was a good player in college, I could hit a good driver with a persimmon wood and what the balls we had at the time. If I smoked it, it would go 265, 270 with roll. Uh, my stepson now flies at 320, 325 in the air with a driver. I used to hit a 7-iron 150 yards, 152 or 3 yards. If I pured it, he'll hit a 7-iron 210, 215 yards. The amount of increase in distance is staggering to me. And, you know, and, and when Noah comes, he, he says I use him as a guinea pig because I, I literally will take him out. He's been at Union League many times during construction. And we'll take him out in the dirt and we'll just have him hit balls from the back tee. And that's I, I can tell where I need to place bunkers for players of his level right away because, you know, I know how far he flies it. But it, it is unbelievably eye-opening to see the difference between how kids play today and how I played in 1983-83 when I was in college, because it's a completely different ballgame.
I mean, they say that all the time, but it's a completely different game. I mean, he gets up and trains with a trainer four and five days a week for an hour and 45 minutes and then Zoom calls with the sports performance coach. I mean, you know, diligent practicer, plays in tournaments all over the world, does online schooling so he can practice more. I mean, it's 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 an, it's just a it's just a completely different game than what I grew up with. How has that changed your job? Well, I've, I, you know, I never, the love I've had for building golf courses has never changed. That I, I, and it's to the point of an obsession. I mean, I've never had a job in my life, and I, I always hear people. A lot of people would always look forward to the weekends. You know, I always look forward to Monday mornings because I love being on the road because I loved building golf courses, like obsessively so. And that has not changed at all. And I, and I always want to do that. And that's probably why I will always, hopefully, God willing, another 20, 25 years work out of the country because that's where most of the new golf is going to be built. And I want to build a, at least a course or new course every year just because that's what I love to do. So um, the passion for golf is not left. It's just that I just when I do have free time now, I just don't want to play golf anymore. It's just, uh, I'm sure it'll come back again someday where I'll play some, but right now it's more important to me to, to give Noah all the opportunities where he can chase his dream. And I think he's got a chance to achieve it. Dana, what did it take for you to break into some of these international markets where you've worked to keep new course construction going? What type of effort did it take to get your, your name out there and recognized in other parts of the world? Well, that was really hard, uh, honestly, because, you know, we're, we're, I think in the golf industry, you know, Hertz and Fry was fairly well known. And, and uh, but outside the golf industry to just the casual golfer, they didn't know who we were. We weren't the celebrity designers, you know, like the, the Nate, the tour pros or we didn't have Fazio's name or the Jones name or the die name. So when you went out of the country, it was a really difficult pursuit to generate jobs overseas, you know, and I spent a lot of time, I mean, I'm I'm talking hundreds of trips over 15 years, traveling overseas, attending conferences, meeting with prospective clients, chasing down leads. It was very difficult to get your foot in the door if you don't have that established name from being, you know, when you're trying to get jobs in Asia or Europe or Middle East or any of those other places. So it was, it was a challenge, but I, I also love the adventure part of it. Cause like I said, I really do like to travel, the foreign travel. And so I always, I always loved it. You know, it was just a, for some people, they, you know, a lot of my friends, they just couldn't believe I like to travel like that and live that nomadic lifestyle of not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. But I, I sort of thrived on it. It sort of fits my personality. Where are you and Jason right now with international work? It's been a, uh... An interesting 20 months, to say the least. Have you been able to go overseas, get any new projects overseas? Where, where's the international market for a team like you and Jason right well, first now? First, I can clear with, with an interesting story. In, in January, the third week of January of 2020, I was, we, were building, building, we were building a course. It was uh, about halfway through construction at that point. Building the first nine holes and driving range of practice facilities on, on a course on Yaz Island in Abu Dhabi. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I was over there working, and I think it was around January 23rd or 4th, I left to go to Saudi Arabia to attend a golf conference, the first international golf conference they had, which was tied into the Saudi International, which I think that year Dustin Johnson won, if I remember. And I went over to that tournament, 
And uh, I came back to Abu Dhabi to go back to the job site. I was in Saudi for like four days, came back, started coughing. Well, <laughs> I got sick. And uh, lo and behold, the hotel I stayed at, the W Hotel on Yaz Island, when I was there, it was right when Chinese New Year began, and the hotel had about 200 Chinese people in the hotel when I checked in. And I built courses in China, so I, I was talking to every everybody I could see. I'd say ni hao, to, which is hello, to see if they spoke any English or whatever. And, and a couple of people talked to me, including a family from Wuhan. And uh, I asked them about it because you got to remember, this is really early on. Nobody knew what was going on, especially in America. We just didn't really – we just knew something was happening, but we had no idea the seriousness of it. The family from Wuhan, the wife told me that uh, they had heard about it, but there's, they hadn't had any problems or anything that they knew of yet. And Well, when they were in the hotel and I was there with them, that's when the Chinese shut the border down. And um, when I came back from Saudi, I started coughing, and the guys on the job were joking that, you well, you got the coronavirus. And, and uh, I was coughing on the flight going home. They let me leave. Because, no, again, nobody in the UAE, they didn't know anything about it either. I flew home. I told my wife before I got there, I said, I'm sick. i got to go see the doctor. I got home, on I think, on a Friday night or Saturday. I can't remember. Monday morning, went to see the doctor. I told her I'm convinced I have coronavirus. She thought I was – they thought I was almost crazy. And they didn't have any tests to give me anyway. They did – I made them do a lung test just to make sure there was nothing in my lungs. And I just sort of stayed in my room for – in the back for like 10, 12 days. And uh, was basically slept most of the time and coughed, tiredness. You couldn't even explain how tired I felt because I slept 16, 18, 20 hours a day. When I started to feel better, I went back to the union league and uh, I was still coughing. <laughs> and lo and behold, Jason got sick. Then everybody said I had coronavirus and they, the, the vehicle I've driven around to this day has been called the Corona Mobile. It's a white enclosed cab vehicle, and everybody on that whole project still calls it that, you know, a couple of years later. I didn't find out until, I guess it was April, that through antibody testing, my antibodies were really strong, that I did, in fact, have had had it. And uh, I just got lucky. It never got more serious. So I, it was a interesting time. I did go back to Abu Dhabi in uh, late February, and then again, the middle March when I was in Abu Dhabi's when they started shutting America down, and I did get back home. I haven't been back since. Left the country since March of 2020. How have you been able to keep your international work going from afar? Well, we did, like in Abu Dhabi, we had um, eight of the nine holes were shaped when I was there, so we already had them. We had a good crew, so we were doing everything like everybody else with Zoom calls and pictures and videos. And uh, they finished the course without me. I actually just had the grand opening uh, on um, November 24th. And um, so that's how we did that one. But our other jobs we have in Vietnam and in uh, we have a new job in Cabo as well, at Cabo del Sol. And we were just finishing the construction drawings when the when they shut the economy and when they shut the uh, travel down here in, in America in the middle of March of 2020. So we finished the construction documents, but then it just sat and same as my job, other job in Vietnam. And Jason, we also have a job in Brazil, same thing. They just still all just shut down. So that's, that's where we've at. And, you know, we've, uh, and then it just, all of our work, you know, obviously stayed in touch with all those people, but until they 
get all the you know enough people vaccinated where they open up these uh, the economies in these countries because like in Asia it's it's still it's just opening up as we speak. I think Singapore and Bangkok are open to tourists now. Uh, it's rumored they're going to open up Vietnam in January to tourists. You can go there as a tourist on a in a package group now, but they're going to open it up to any tourist apparently in January. So I'll start going back to Asia again every month here probably in Jan after China, the, the Lunar New Year probably in early February. And I am going back to uh, to uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai in the uh, last two weeks of January as well. So I'll start foreign travel again finally. But it it basically it shut everything down. I mean in an, in in America it's a crazy thing because since Tiger Woods. The, Coronavirus has probably been the best thing that ever happened to golf because, as you know, virtually all the golf courses in most places in the U.S., the rounds are way up, the revenues are up, the club manufacturers are doing good because people felt safe playing golf. So it's really pushed up all the the, the golf numbers, and, and because of that, a lot of the golf clubs are doing renovations as well. So we've been really fortunate to have quite a few renovations uh, under construction and in planning now uh, because since coronavirus started so we're real fortunate actually you know we were trading text messages a, a few weeks ago and you mentioned a course that you did in the united states shelter harbor i know we're jumping around here all over the world but what makes shelter harbor special and i know that it's a project that you really enjoyed working on well i've told people Anybody that has ever asked, you know, you're never supposed to say what your favorite project is, just like you're not, to, you know, you don't have a favorite kid. I always tell people my favorite golf course is the next one I'm going to play. That's my PC way of yeah, saying that's it. A, that's a standard answer for a lot of architects, too. But I, yeah. I honestly, I've told everybody uh, since we built it that the best golf course I've ever worked on and my favorite is Shelter Arbor. And part of the reason, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. It's not necessarily the most difficult course to play I've ever done, or it might not be, you know, you know, maybe it wouldn't host a U.S. Open or anything. But when you look at all the things that make golf great to me, which are, you know, the scenery, the, the playability of it, how dramatic it is, the way the club is operated, the buildings, the conditioning, Shelter Harbor is like a 10 on all of those. It is an extraordinary place on, you know, on almost over 500 acres and there's no housing. And it's in, in the vision the founders had, there were seven founders, the way they structured it and the, the trust they put in us, because it was a very difficult site. We didn't necessarily move that much dirt, but the problem was wherever you wanted to move any dirt, it was all rocks. Some of the rocks the size of cars and small houses. So it became a, a a really massive job because wherever you quit grading, the golf hole was unplayable. So if you've, you've been there, if you know the golf holes are actually cleared and the turf areas are very wide at Shelter Harbor. And if we wouldn't have done that, we would have say made the fairways 38 yards wide and you have seven or eight yards rough on each side and then you go into trees. Well, anytime you hit in the trees, you could literally break your, your wrist. I mean, because I mean, it's, it was that severe. So we overgraded it width-wise to make it playable, and uh, which cost the founders a lot of money to do. But they they did understand that, and um, and then when you put out the natives that the golf course has in the turf conditions, I mean, I do not think that that superintendent gets enough credit, Mike Dukowski. 
It is one of the finest conditioned golf courses in America, and it might have some of the best native stands of grasses you'll ever see. It's just a, it's just an ideal place and setting for golf. And um, again, it's it's my favorite job I've ever worked on. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is there a short course there too, Dana? Yeah, I built a nine-hole little short par three course. The holes are from like right at like 95 yards to like 165 yards and it's just a everything about it's fun and we're, we're actually doing a master plan right now uh because they're going to build a, a very elaborate short game area in the back uh of where the range is now and, and do some more work on the range so uh they're going to make a great course even better i mean again can't say enough about the place or the membership fantastic place three words that I think have already come up in this podcast, or maybe they've been used to describe some of your work. What do the words bold, creative, and dramatic mean to you when you hear them in golf course architecture descriptions? Well, I mean, it, to me, they all sort of those, all three of those particular words sort of tie together and, you know, and, and a, a place like a union league is, you know, a shadow Creek is really bold because it's got the massive movements, the creativity to think of that. And then they're visually really dramatic. They look good to the eye. They take good photographs. And uh, when you think of those two sites, they had they were just dead flat. Both sites are dead flat. And uh, to, to then go and create something that is so visually dramatic that people enjoy, is uh, that is an art form in itself. And again, there are the people that like the minimalism that just think that that is wrong to do things like that, fundamentally wrong. And, uh, again, depending on sites, I would agree or disagree with that because you, one of the things that the Union League is they want – Jeff McFadden wanted to build what he called a course for the ages. And when you think of the great golf down on the Jersey Shore, and there's some wonderful golf courses down there, whether it be Atlantic City, Country Club, or Hidden Creek, or Galloway, Afazio Golf Course – but I asked one time in sitting with three or 400 members to downtown uh, Union League, can you remember any hole? I mean, really remember it like, like you remember 18 at Pebble Beach or, you know, 16 at Cypress Point or 17 at the TPC, these things that are just etched in your mind for eternity. And uh, I think one person said, the, the, I think it was the second green or whatever, Galloway that overlooks um, Atlantic City. I said, I understand that, but they, they said, so, but what I'm talking about is you're creating a site where you have 15 or 20 holes that you just stand on the tee or you're in the landing area and you go, wow. Well, that, that is definitely um, creative and bold and dramatic to me. And that's what we've done there. So that's what I think about is, you know, having sites like, um, you know, like Shadow Creeks and Union Leagues. Calusa Pines is another fantastic example. You know, it's always been ranked. I think it's ranked. It's usually ranked number two or three in the state of Florida. It's always been in the top hundred, and it was on a literally a dead nothing site in an area in the in the, the two counties in Collier and Lee County have like 150 golf courses, and 148 or nine, 47 or eight of them are not even memorable at all. They're just golf courses. And uh, so having that type of a mindset and training, I think, in that particular case, worked itself because it is the best course in the southwest Florida by far. So, again, some people may disagree with that, but, you know, it's, I, I think I'm right about it. But, you know, again, that's why everybody's got a different opinion. 
Dana, how do you balance being uh, dramatic, bold, and creative with modern maintenance realities and potential uh, future maintenance realities? Well, there's no question that a place like Union League is going to be not the easiest to maintain. The turf grass areas are not that difficult. It's more the natives we've created, which are, you know, we're going to have, you know, I'm not even sure of this number exactly, 40, 50 acres of native areas uh, that have to be maintained, just like they do at Pine Valley. And, you know, I would dare to say long term that the, the maintaining the native areas is going to be far tougher than maintaining the turf grass areas. Uh, because, you know, mowing a fairway and mowing the greens and the tees and the roughs is not that severe there. It is just the native areas and then the bunkering, which is really dramatic. And as long as the client understands that and that's, you know, and their goal is to have a certain type of a look, which was discussed, you know, back in 2018, uh, then that then I think that's OK. If the client doesn't have the money to maintain it, then it's definitely the wrong thing to do. Dana, how many different places have you lived since entering the business in 1983? Well, when I worked with Tom from 1983 through um, uh, April of 88, when I went to, when I went to work with, uh, with Mike Hertzen, mm-hmm. uh, I moved like 15 times in five years shaping, and I was just running a bulldozer and shaping golf courses. So I moved a lot, but it was always primarily in the Sun Belt from North and South Carolina, Florida, all the way out to uh, you know California, Arizona, Texas. But when I went to work, part of the reason I went to work with Mike Kurtzen is, number one, at one point I I realized I didn't want to keep running a bulldozer because it's a hard way to – it's tough on your body. And also when you're on a bulldozer, you control, you know, a little bit of a great big project. And, uh, you know, I wanted to do what Andy did, and I knew I wasn't going to be given that chance with Fazio, and Mike, Mike Kurtzen offered me that opportunity. So that, that's how I, I I decided to go to work for Mike and to – to do that for a living. And I, one of the benefits of working for Mike is I got to live after I built the devil's pulpit, I actually moved to Toronto for one year, which was Mike's first big job. And, uh, after we built that, I, he let me move to uh, Columbus and I could raise my family there, which was because at that point I had two little kids and I have three grown kids now, but uh, it was important to have a stable home for them. So I, and starting in uh, 1990, I just based myself out of uh, Columbus and traveled to jobs from there. And I didn't start traveling out of the country for business until 2006. So I went from 1988 for 18 years. I was just building golf courses with Mike in the United States and Canada. Dana, whether you're a golf course architect, golf course superintendent, working construction, even sales, how does the ability to move and travel anywhere, help your career? What type of opportunities do you get if you're just willing to go places? Well, you get a, you know, you know, one of the things we did is in 2006, you could see the golf business in America was slowing down. And that's when I went to speak at a conference, George Pepper, the old editor of golf magazine, now the editor of links magazine invited me to speak at a conference in Beijing with several other architects. And uh, I went to that. And um, that's how I got my first job there. And then I actually moved there in 2008 and lived there for almost five years. And when you work overseas and you travel to these countries, besides seeing extraordinary places and meeting vastly different people from vastly different cultures across the world, it not only changes your personal opinions of things, but it also opens your your eyes to new ideas and different ways of doing things. 
and it, you know it let us build projects in you know in China and South Korea and uh, Vietnam and you know and getting jobs in Brazil and the Middle East and Italy and I mean it just it just changed things and uh, without the willingness to to really put in that time it's not like you're just going to go take two trips overseas and you're going to be given three jobs because it's incredibly competitive trying to get work and a lot of it comes down to the people you know and you know, being connected one way or another to the ownership group through friends of friends or contacts and and it's just a a, a hard chase to, it's an impossible thing to do from sitting in the united states and the only way you know the and and the reality of our world it has been in our business that a lot of the big names, the, the tour players, get you know they put their names on these projects. So half the jobs you're trying to get, or two thirds of them, go to those people anyway. So you're really fighting for a small percentage of jobs, and it, it's it's uh, not for the meek of heart because it's it's a tough way to make a living. Dana, you've accomplished arguably as much as anybody in your age range in America as a golf course architect. What is something you haven't done that? you want to do here as you uh, look at the next 10 to 20 years of your career? Well, you know, one of the things I guess uh, I wish I had more of an opportunity to do was to work on some of these sites at the Core Crenshaw's and Tom Doak's and Gil Hans uh, projects, because, you know, I've only had a few opportunities, whether it be at the Devil's Paintbrush, uh, Aaron Hills, you know, where or even the South Course at Arcadia Bluffs, where you get these sites where you don't have to move much, Phil. And also, it's such a benefit when you get these jobs where you can work on sand, because it's like the Union League. It just makes things easier. And a lot of times, I'm working in mountains, dead flat sites, you know, a lot of wetlands, you know, restrictive with um, corridors because of housing developments, whatever. And and I, I hope that in the future on some of these foreign jobs, I'm going to get jobs where I can really have a, just a awesome piece of topography and have to move and move very little dirt because that is, that that's another whole art form in itself. Cause I, I can't possibly explain enough how I admire Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw and even Tom Doak and, and Gil Hans, because these guys do, they, they really, they really are great architects and they do tremendous work but in many cases, they're getting to do them on jobs that I've never had the chance at. And I really, really do hope to get those, some of those chances in the future. Have you thought about what your work life is going to be like when all 27 holes at Union League National are complete? Well, we've got a lot coming up now. I mean, through my another job in Vietnam, two job, another job in Vietnam, and uh, another job in Thailand now. So, you know, I'm... I'm in, in our job in Cabo del Sol. So right there, I mean, I've got a lot of work for the next several years on the new jobs. And, you know, I, I basically plan on spending, God willing, another 20 years traveling overseas. And uh, about 10 days a month, I'll be out of the country. And if I have one or two jobs going on, I'm going to spend those 10 days on those jobs. The other three weeks, I'll be in America and I'll work on whatever jobs we have in the country. Because, uh, again, I just it's just important to me to keep building those new projects in different markets because it is just something that personally appeals to me. So I don't think I'm going to be, and we also, there is quite a lot of work yet, uh, left at the union league. I think in 2023, possibly 2024, they will build their new, they're, they're, there's about a 60 acre parcel now up front, part of what is already there. And then more land they bought. 
and we're going to build a new entrance road. They're going to build a par three course, relocate a brand new driving range, uh, build a big 60, 70,000 square foot putting course, a new clubhouse, and um, then also a um, uh, six or eight uh, four bedroom golf cottages up on on a large fill which will uh, be up like 20, 25 feet in the air to where it gives it a commanding view, a lot like what we did at Calusa Pines, which will then just blend into everything else they've done on the golf course. So there still is a pretty good chunk of work. It's just a couple of, couple of years away at Union League. But uh, I will mess it because of the, the closeness we built with the, uh, with, with the, the construction guys. Um, with Tim Malone and his crew at uh, Guaranteed Landscaping because it became very close. And it's as much time as probably any architect has ever spent on any golf course because just because it's they always kept nine holes open. So it's basically a four-year process the way they've done it. So and uh, it's just been a, a really, really important job in my career and something I'll always be thankful for. And last thing here, I mean, you've mentioned a lot of people in this podcast. You've had a chance to work with Tom Fazio, Andy Banfield, Mike Hertz, and Jason Straka, and you've worked all over the world. What do you remember more? Do you remember the, the people or the landscapes when you look back at your projects? Always the people. I mean, because I've done so many projects now since 1983 on, but how I can remember job like William McKee at Wade Hampton. He was the founder of Wade Hampton. I just remember William. He was such a character and such a passionate guy. And then there was a guy named William Noby at Anbrier in St. Louis. Uh, is actually in Waterloo, Illinois, but just outside of St. Louis. And because he built it as a memorial to his daughter who passed away. And she was the one that talked him into the golf course. And Jerry Weaver and his family uh, in Peoria, Illinois. I mean, I used when I was raising my children in the summers for about 10 years straight, we would travel for three months in a car and we'd just go live on different job sites. And my kids from the time they were three and four years old started growing up on these job sites. And you become incredibly close to these families. And, uh, you know, and, and that is the part that I enjoy the most. I mean, I, I love people and I love meeting people and I love meeting people from different cultures. And this gives me an opportunity to do that on a truly on a global scale. Well, Dana, this was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for taking so much time. And, you know, I love the line. I never had a job in my life because I can totally relate to that. I feel the same way about my job. And just to give our listeners some context, here we are the day after Thanksgiving talking golf. So thank you so much for taking some time and uh, congrats on everything. Uh, I really appreciate it. I look forward to talking to you again in the future.